They said, isn't this Joseph's son? Aren't Mary and his brothers and sisters right here among us? Where'd he get all this wisdom? And they took offense at him. They took offense because they thought they knew him. Only they didn't. I'm speaking now for a moment just to those that have ever preached. There are most of you online right now, uh, uh, old preachers, your first time that you ever preached. Uh, do you remember how scared you were when you got up and all those eyes were focused on you and you were so ready, you knew what you were going to say only the minute you got up there, you just went blank. My dad said the first sermon he ever preached, he went from Genesis to Revelation in 10 minutes. I was... I, the first sermon I ever preached was in my dad's church. It was a Sunday night. He'd never trust me in the morning. I preached on prayer. I had a glass of water. I drank a glass and a half. I was drinking it when there was nothing in it. I was so nervous. It went 17 minutes. It was 17 minutes of pure torture. So I've come a long way. Now it's 35 minutes of pure torture. I remember just being so nervous that I tried to find things that I could say that people never heard, but I didn't know anything that people never heard. So I just got it all out. And when it was over, I stood at the door where you're supposed to stand back in the day and people walked out and they said the most encouraging things like, well, Rome wasn't built in a day. The first sermon I preached here at college church was over in old college church. And I got up in, uh, it was even harder. I was uh, working my way through John chapter 21, where Jesus said three times to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, I'm trying to point this stuff out. I'm talking about the language and all that stuff. Well, I didn't realize that the congregation was that full of academics. That was the first mistake. And so I was kind of working on this point and saying, and you know why Jesus asked the disciples, do you love me? It might be because up to this point, no disciple had ever mentioned to Jesus that he loved him. Think about that. They've been with him for three years. They've worshiped him, followed him, obeyed him. No one has ever said that they loved him, not even in the Greek. That's what I shouldn't have said. It's right, but Ken Skank was in the audience. And Ken is fluent in six languages. One of those is Greek. And I remember his arm on the pew like this. And when I said it, he just went. And real slow, he reached down and picked up his Greek New Testament and started thumbing through it. And you know how your brain can do two things at one time? You can talk about this, but the other side of my brain is, oh, no, man, I am not in Kansas anymore. I got to check and recheck everything I say. Heresy checkers are all over the congregation. First sermon Jesus ever preached started out really well, and then it went bad, and then it was a catastrophe. Luke tells us the first sermon he preached was in Nazareth. It's not quite true because he'd already said he was going through different towns and teaching in their synagogues. But the sermon that Luke remembers was the sermon everyone remembered. When preachers preach their first sermon, they try to introduce themselves. This kind of person I am, this is who you're listening to. And they try to frame in uh, what they 
think is the most important thing. And so Jesus does exactly this thing. Synagogues back in those days did not have preachers. They used what we would call lay people. You'd go to the synagogue on that Saturday and you would stand up and they would hand you the scroll. And on this particular day, Jesus, the hometown hero, he'd made good in all these surrounding burgs, healed lots of people, was wildly popular. Now he came back to his hometown about the size of a fountain. So everybody knew him. And when he went into the synagogue, people are sitting almost in a round against the walls. There's a couple of seats in the front, considered chief seats. The teacher would read from the scroll, then would sit in the seat and would preach what we would call a sermon, some commentary on what he had just read. And on that day, Jesus opened the scroll and he stood up and he found Isaiah 61. Now keep in mind, there are no chapters until 12 or 13 centuries later. He finds the place in the scroll that we would call Isaiah 61 and he starts to read from the scroll. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover sight to the blind, release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he sits in one of those seats. And Luke says the eye of everyone was fastened on him. They were riveted. I was in a Catholic church a couple years ago, and when he got up and announced his text, I will preach today on the just shall live by faith. I thought, this ought to be good. That was the verse that fueled the Protestant Reformation. And now a priest in the Catholic Church is going to take that on. I was riveted. My eyes were fastened on him. And for the next nine minutes, I never blinked. He was done. Jesus was done in nine words. Having rolled up the scroll, he sat down and just said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's it. That's the whole sermon. It's amazing. They loved it. I think it was short, and that's why. But he had done what preachers do. He identified who he was. He attached himself to Isaiah's servant of the Lord. He said this person Isaiah was promising would come, has come, I am that person. And he framed what was most important to him. What's important to me? It's the gospel to the poor. It's freeing the prisoners. It's recovering what was once had and lost. It is releasing the oppressed and proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. That is what I am all about. And that would have surprised the people on that day, but it would not have upset them. What upset them came next. Looking around the room, if in fact there was a room, he started to notice that the people in his hometown were looking for something, not a sermon. They were looking for a miracle. They didn't want words. They wanted proof. And so he said, no doubt one of you will say, 
Do in our city what you did in Capernaum, just up the road. Do some miracles so we can believe in you. But Jesus said, a prophet is never accepted in his own hometown. Do you know why that is? I think it's because when you grew up there, people have experiences of you in the past and you never outgrow those experiences. They remember you what you were and it never occurs to them that you could be more than that. They have categories, well-defined and earned categories, and that is who you are. And so you never get accepted in your hometown because of their preconceived ideas. That's what hometowns do. When they heard this, they would have been concerned, but not upset. But what he said next sent them over the edge. He, he, drawing on two characters from Israel's own Bible, the one they were familiar with, he points out that the God of Israel is active in other places outside of Israel, using Elijah, one of their favorite preachers. He said, in Elijah's day, there were lots of widows, but God found a widow in Zarephath. Where's that? It ain't in Israel. So out of all of the widows, God found one that was not in your tribe. And back in Elisha's day, another one of their favorite preachers, he said there were lots of lepers, but God found a leper in Syria. And Syria is where Zarephath is. It's not in Israel. Using two of their favorite preachers, Jesus locates the activity of God outside of Israel's little family. And when they heard this, they lost it. They jumped up and grabbed him and drug him out to the Mount Precipice. And they were getting ready to throw him overboard. But he walked right through their midst. It's right here where I start to hear uh, maybe a, a God's word for our church. Maybe for your family. If I were to summarize it, I would say love farther. Strong communities love farther. To start with, they love farther than words. They love in deeds, actions. And then they love farther than their categories, their boundaries, and their borders. What intrigues me is the connection Jesus makes to being anointed with the Spirit and what we would call acts of mercy. In Jesus' mind, they are inseparable. What he says is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has 
anointed me to proclaim the gospel to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, recover sight for the blind, release the oppressed, and and declare the year of the Lord's favor. Let me say that in slow motion. The reason the Spirit has anointed me is to proclaim the gospel to the poor and release those in prison. They are inseparable. What intrigues me is Jesus' categories. The poor are not just those who don't have money. The poor in Jesus' day are those who were downtrodden, those who were marginalized, those who were kept out of power and opportunity because of social structures. They were poor. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the gospel to those people. The prisoners were those who were in bondage to something or somebody else's power. Something or someone had control over them and they could not break free of it. Jesus said, that's my audience. The blind are those in our day who are confused, who have been lied to by our culture. They have pursued things our culture says is the good life. And when they got them, there was nothing there. Every decision they make only leads to more chaos. And the oppressed are those held down, those that cannot rise to the splendor that is in them because of the people and the systems that are around them. And you guys, what intrigues me is that Jesus is, is, is sent to reach people that aren't in front of him. Those in prison and those who are blind and the oppressed would not have been in the synagogue that day. Their circumstances would have forbade it. And yet here was Jesus saying, this is my preferred audience. This is remarkable. Preachers, preachers, when when we go to conferences, often talk about the people that are in their church. I don't know why they do it. It's It's one of the reasons I don't go to preacher conferences. There are others, but that's one of them. Generally speaking, the larger the audience and the more accomplished the audience, the more credibility the preacher has. And you will listen to them at breaks talking about who comes to their church. And what intrigues me is that these are not the people in Jesus's ideal audience. The ones in Jesus's audience are poor, imprisoned, blind, and oppressed. He is never going to build a great church with these people. He won't be able to go off and brag about them. 
He's open to having other people come, but that's not his target. He wants those for whom life has become hard. And he wants them because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. In the Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit came on 70 elders, they were just ordinary people. They stood up in Numbers chapter 11 and they started preaching. These are ordinary people. They just start preaching. And it was so powerful that by the time they were done, the people in the audience said, my goodness, would to God that all of our men had the Holy Spirit on them. When the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, he was bound with two ropes. And suddenly, it says in Judges, when the Spirit of the Lord came on him, he broke the ropes like they were charred flags. And then he picked up the jawbone of a donkey and he went to battle against a thousand of Israel's enemies and killed a thousand men in a single day with the jawbone of a donkey because the Holy Spirit was upon him. When the Holy Spirit came upon the boy David, he became a king. When the Spirit came upon Ezekiel, he became a prophet. When the Spirit blew over the valley of dry bones, the dead came to life and they started to dance. Do you have any idea what happens when the Spirit of the Lord is upon someone? If you are involved in social justice, if you have a passion in your heart for freeing the prisoners and showing compassion on the poor, if you really want to see the blind recover their sight and people that are oppressed released out of their chains, do you know how much more you could do if you had the Spirit of the Lord? So often as it is, we move into into silos of social justice that are strong in messages of compassion, but they are devoid of spiritual language that calls for anointing. Why on earth would you strike the spiritual language to broaden your base of volunteers? When the Spirit of the Lord is a game changer. In churches, our Christians who diligently and devoutly pursue the anointing of the Spirit. We want the favor of God. We want the advantage. We want the spiritual power. But we are sometimes devoid of activities that free people who are imprisoned. We 
don't even know people that are poor. It has not occurred to us that people are victims of cultural lies. We've created categories. There are good people and bad people. And that's how we explain the successful among us. If you crave the anointing of the Holy Spirit, why would you not be involved in the things the Spirit is already doing? Why would we sit in churches and think it's going to happen there? What we have in our culture are silos, it seems. There are exceptions to this, like the ones Jordan was pointing to earlier in the service. Man, are we proud of those people and many, many more in our congregation who are doing the very same thing. They are doing what some call social justice with the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is multiplying the force of their ministry exponentially. It is blending together power from God with their personality. And it is a beautiful release. It's powerful to watch. As a whole, we have people pursuing social justice in language devoid of the Spirit and people pursuing the Spirit in language devoid of justice, such that when Christians want to express their passion for justice, we feel like we have to leave Christian churches in order to do it. I don't hear many people from Black Lives Matter telling me I need to be anointed with the Spirit. And I don't hear many people anointed with the Spirit telling me that black lives matter. They feel like different camps to me. One feels like they've almost left their religion. Are you all right? I wish there was a thing that was not, I don't know what it is yet, that was not social justice, but spiritual justice. Spiritual justice, I presume, would be justice that is motivated by the Spirit. It is not motivated by a cause, a need, a deficiency, or some injustice. It's motivated by the Holy Spirit who is in us not by some event that is outside of us. I would think spiritual justice would do acts of mercy, but at a deeper, more comprehensive level. Les Newbigin says, to a hungry man, a meal looks like heaven. But after he has eaten it, he knows it is not. So I would think 
that there is room for someone who does acts of mercy, not as a way to bait uninterested people in church, but as a way to express the life that is in them. I would think it would be justice motivated not by anger, but by love. Love for all people. Those in the center and those on the margins. So it would not create other victims. I don't know what it is yet, but it seems like something there. Are you okay? Anyway, the thing that strikes me about Jesus' message is this inseparable tie between anointing and these, these, these acts. The last thing um, uh, is Jesus' audience. Using two stories from uh, Israel's Old Testament, he goes on to show them that God is in places Israel has not been. In fact, in places Israel does not like. God is already there. And he has revealed himself to widows in Zarephath or lepers in Syria. This is what blew their minds. This is why hometown people who had confined him could not explain him. He jumped the categories. Dave Smith is a friend of mine, and every now and then he'll say, you need to read a book. So whenever Dave recommends I read a book, I read it. The one he's had me read recently is written by a Catholic missionary. It's a thin little book. It's a biography, actually. The guy's name is Vincent Donovan. He's a missionary to the Maasai people in East Africa. And while I'm not fond of biographies generally, I was thrilled to read this. The priest says that when he went there to about 60 or 70,000 Maasai people in Tanzania, he found that all of his language to speak about the gospel was arcane. He wrote, every single thing I prepared to teach them had to be revised and discarded once I presented it to them. I was left wondering what was the essential message of Christianity? What did theology have to do with it? Had any of those Roman and European theologians or theologians who had given us that theology, have they ever met a pagan? How much of what we know as morality is involved in our message? What in fact is the church? He wrote, I had to realize that God enables a people, any people, to reach salvation through their cultural, tribal, and racial customs and traditions. We must not try to call people back to where they were or to where we are, as beautiful as that may be. We must have the courage to go with them to a place neither them nor us have ever been before. 
One day he was meeting with the tribal leaders. He thought he would introduce them to Christianity. He told them that there was once a very famous tribe in Israel. They were famous world over because they preserved the tradition for one God. But it was not always easy for them, he said. Early in their days, God found a man named Abraham, and he asked him to leave his household and his tribe and his country and go to a land where God would show him. The good priest went on to say that the reason God called Abraham to do this was because the people in that day had always attached their God to a household, to a tribe, or to a nation. He was tribal, parochial, and Abraham was being called out of those categories so that he might find the high God. The priest told the people, when Abraham left his homeland, he brought to the world one true high God. He said he remembered the writings of Tillich, who told us that if God really is supreme, then he is contained by nothing except himself. Then he asked the people whether what happened to Abraham had happened to them. He said, everyone in the world knows how devout you are, the faith you have, and how beautiful your worship is. Truly, you have known God, and God has loved you. But I wonder, perhaps, if you've not become like the people of the tribe of Abraham. Perhaps God has become trapped in the Messiah country among this tribe. Perhaps God is no longer free here. Maybe the story of Abraham speaks also to you. Maybe you must leave your nation, your tribe, your land, at least in your thoughts, and go in search of the high God, the God of all tribes, the God of the world. Don't try to hold him or you will never know him. Free your God to become the high God, for he is the God not only of the Messiah, he is also my God, the God of every tribe and nation in the world. The God you serve, he told them, loves the rich and hates the poor. He loves good people, but he hates evil people. But the high God, insisted the priest, loves both people. He loves you and your enemies, there was stone silence. The priest thought maybe he had gone too far. Finally, after the tribal leader collected himself, he asked a question which the priest said, I don't know whether it came from curiosity or anger. I only know that it surprised me. The priest said, or the, uh, the tribal leader said, this story of Abraham, does it speak only to the Messiah or does it speak also to you? 
Has your tribe found the high God? Have you known him? There was an even longer silence while the priest collected his thoughts. He said, what I said next, I did not plan on saying. I remembered, he said, that the missionaries to France told us that the French God always celebrated their glory of the French. I remembered, he said, the Americans who had wrapped their God inside of their beliefs. I remembered, he said, the Nazis who went to war in the name of their God. And before I could stop myself, I said, no, we have not found him either. My tribe has not known him. For us too, he is the unknown God. But we are in search of him. And I have come a long, long way to invite you to search for him with us. Let us search for him together. Maybe together we will find him. He got up and left the circle. And on his way back to the tent, he said he remembered the shortest summation of the gospel in Paul's writings. It's in Titus. The goodness and kindness of God our Savior has appeared to all people. <laughs> That's what upset the people in Nazareth that day. They thought they knew him. The opposite of knowledge is not ignorance. It's the illusion of knowledge. Oh, that God would make us hungry again. Tozer said to have found him and yet to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. Easily scorned by the happy religionist. But he said, it is the heart of the children of God. Would to God that we would question our assumptions as much as we question others. Would to God that we would listen in conversations more than we evangelize. Would to God we would see his work in people in places we don't even like. And would to God we would build pathways between groups of people that the church has scorned and alienated and labeled and figured out. In fact, trying to save pathways between their communities and ours. We do not bring God to anyone. He's already there. What they need 
to receive the gospel is already there inside of every culture in some form. Oh God, give us a heart to find it. So I've put questions in front of you today as we usually do to stir up a conversation when this is over. No doubt you'll have conversations like the one I had after the morning service at 9.15. I hope you're around people that can bring guidance and, and, and valuable wisdom into those conversations. But here is the question that we've been playing with all week. What is it that God may be calling you and your family or us and our church, maybe your small group, what is it God may be calling you to get involved in that is larger than your family? The very thing that bonds you together as a family or a group sends you out. It must. What specific thing might God be asking you to do? And what might be a good way to start? Can I pray for you and me? Jesus, like the good people of Nazareth, I have thought that I knew you, that you were as I defined you. And then you went and did this. God, I pray that you would liberate your people. And yet I pray that you would sharpen our focus so that we become even more attached to Christ. <laughs> because no one knows the Father but the Son. And in that attachment, I pray that our hearts would become more like yours and less like our categories. In the name of Jesus.